Listener Production. Jessica Alyssa Serro was born and raised in the Hills District in Sydney. The child of a European professional football playing father and a Filipino music loving mother, they were always going to march to the beat of their own drum. Today, you're more likely to know them as Montaigne, the ARIA award-winning artist twice selected to represent Australia at Eurovision and subject of this year's Archibald Prize-winning artwork. Montaigne wrote for Refinery29 that they are a young queer person of colour who once thought they wanted to be a pop star, but now just wants to make music they're passionate about and for a community they're underrepresented in. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Montaigne. Hey Montaigne, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Hi, thanks for having me. We are so thrilled to have you and I'm going to admit something wildly creepy. A few weeks ago, I spent so long looking at a portrait of you. (laughs) (laughs) I I realised as soon as you you came on, because obviously everyone's listening, but I can see you while we're chatting. And I was like, I did spend a really creepily long time Uh looking at the portrait of you for the Archibald Prize. Can you tell us about the experience of working with Julia Gutman to to create that? Um. Oh, it was very relaxed because she's a friend of mine and all of it yeah. was a very, it was very informal, the whole thing. She sort of just messaged me on Facebook Messenger and was like, hey, I was thinking of, you know, doing a portrait of you for the Archibald Prize, would you be keen? I was like, yeah, that would be cool. And then she just came to my house one afternoon and like took some photos of me on her phone and then drew me for about 20 minutes and I just sat on my floor in my share house and... um and that was, that was like the entirety of my involvement in the process. Yeah, like the whole, the rest of it was her. And then, you know, a couple of months later, she sent me through an image of the final, of the finished thing. I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like as if that came from that, you know. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, easy. There wasn't much formality or, or ceremony to it really. Yeah, I reckon I've got in my head like these really like old school stereotypes of what it is to pose for a painting, right? Like you've got this, I don't know, what's my reference point? It's probably like Leonardo DiCaprio drawing Kate Winslet in in Titanic. It's not like that. I reckon it's like that sometimes probably, but I do think that like both Jules and I are very chill, regular people who love art and, and its process and rituals, but also just... You know, I guess exist in a mundane type of way of living oftentimes as well as we all do and and both, I guess, know that, I don't know, we're just like, we're just like, not, <laughs> we're just real with each other, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of reporting in the in the aftermath, as there is about, I think, a lot of major cultural prizes in Australia that they have tended to go to the same kinds of people. And there was a lot of reporting about the fact that, uh, as the newspapers were saying it, um, we finally had a woman creator for the Archibald Prize who was the winner who had created the portrait of a woman. And you kind of came out and corrected the record. Yeah, no, I came out as all of that 
came out as non-binary because I don't know. It was just like annoying to me. Yeah, I suppose it would have been. I um. I think especially when people talking about like records and and stuff I would mm. I would want to represent you know the identity that I feel I represent properly especially because it is one of the more minor ones and oppressed ones and I think it's good when you know people talk about representation right Hey tell me about you as a kid because I went digging back into your history and I am obsessed with just how athletic and how impressively <laughs> athletic you were, are, continue to be. I don't want to undermine you. Tell me about you as a kid. What did you think you were going to do with your life? Oh, it changed so often. I um, When I was 12, I was really into Twilight and Harry Potter and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to be a novelist or a journalist. And then when I was 14, I was really into the Jonas Brothers. So I was convinced I was going to be a singer and then marry one of them. And then... When I was 15, 16, I really started to get into football and was feeling a bit more disciplined about it and, you know, played in in the Premier League in, in New South Wales and Super League and wanted to, yeah, I guess play for the Matildas and play in the US and, and do all of that stuff. But I think music was always the thing in the shadows there that was waiting to be noticed. Mm-hmm. Like I always paid attention to it and loved it, you know, in my day-to-day life, but I didn't think it was possible to make a career out of it. So I never counted it as, you know, a thing worth striving towards. And, yeah, football felt more within reach because my dad sort of more or less understood the system. He was a professional football player himself. But I think what happened was music just accidentally took the forefront because of, like, Triple J on Earth High and all that stuff. And, yeah, it just became the main main thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've always loved sport, though. Like, not just football. I really enjoy doing lots of different things. My mum put me through a lot of different, you know, classes and activities like ballet and tennis and swimming and, and everything. And I think there's something in, you know, like Aussie kids value sport above everything else, right? That was certainly my experience at school, that sport mm. was sort of your your entry pass into popularity and feeling yeah. included and feeling part of something. Was that the case for you? Well, this is the funny thing. I think me being good at sport was the reason why I wasn't like bullied outright yeah, because right. I was, I'm a nerdy person. Like I was also, you know, as a kid, I, I would say, I don't know, maybe I was a bit handsome as a kid, but like, I was definitely, you know, ethnic. I had dark skin and I looked like, you know, I had kind of curly hair and I don't know. I was interested in weird things as well that were pretty non-mainstream and I would think what would be considered pretty nerdy. And, um, yeah, but I wasn't, as far as I can tell, I was bullied in my football teams, (laughs) like that's for sure. But at school I wasn't, like... I think people also maybe appreciated my musical talent. I'm not sure. Sometimes, like, there were, you know, there's groups of popular girls who who would be like, wow, it's so cool that you can sing and that and you sing so well and stuff like that. In retrospect, I'm not sure if they were, like, taking the piss a little bit or if they were, like, genuinely into, like, the fact that I could sing and stuff. I feel like the people who had a bit of a rough time when they were teenagers or when they were at school tend to move forward 
with an incredible determination. Like there's almost like, you know, I don't want to be all cliched and say it's sort of forged in the fire, but there there can be a bit of a, well, I'm going to focus on me and what I can do because I'm not going to, mm. I'm not going to feel and think about all of this because it's too much. Yeah. Well, I think crucially what people who are considered as not belonging to some sort of main group in high school and stuff like that are, I think, in, you know, just inherently different in the things they like, dislike, you know, maybe even they're neurodivergent, maybe they, you know, just don't conform physically in some way, you know, and sometimes, you know, maybe that difference isn't my choice and it isn't like a matter of like and dislike and there's not much they can do about it and that can be extremely difficult. But then also, you know, conjure resilience. But like, I think, you know, for me, it's like, I think I struggled all throughout high school to be like, why do I feel like the only one of me in out here? <laughs> you know, like what's what's the deal here? Why do I feel like I'm the only type type of me? And and it is because I want different things mm. to like what all those people who probably come from like not I not normal families, right? Cuz like what's a normal <laughs> family? But like I guess traditional families, yeah. you know, like traditional white possibly rich. I also went to a private Catholic girls school. So I imagine a lot of those people were rich, but like, I don't know, their parents expected something of them that was fairly rigid and standard with Australian white culture. Where for me, you know, one again, I like, I didn't come from Australian white culture. Like, you know, my parents are immigrants and my mom's Filipino, my dad's Argentinian. And like, they tried to, you know, assimilate me a little bit, you know, they, they tried to be as white as possible in their own way. Yeah, But, yeah. like, I have lots of different hobbies and interests and curiosities and I feel like, I don't know, I'm thinking a lot about reality TV at the moment because I've been watching F-Boy Island <laughs> with my partner. <laughs> and the thing that always baffles me, so I, I, I know I'm digressing a lot. But no, the thing please that, digress. Let's the, talk the, about F-Boy Island. The, the, the thing that's that baffles me about every single person on that show or at mm. least the format of that show and the the way it's edited and the things they choose to include is that no one seems to talk about their interests. Like no one's <laughs> like, I'm really into marine biology or I'm really yeah. into like base jumping or, you know, like, and it's like, don't, I feel like if I can't talk about my hobbies and my interests with my prospective partner, then there is not a long-term relationship there, you yeah. know? And that's because I'm, yeah, I'm interested in the world and trying new things and being part of it. And I think, like, the resilience with, like, kids who are different or who have very specific interests or ho- wide-ranging hobbies or whatever when they're young that they themselves know are in their heart and they're following that voice, not the ones that comes from their parents or any other societal pressure. They're always going to end up there mm. because that's what's there in their heart. Mm. You know what I mean? Like even if there are all these other pressures around, they know what they want. And as long as there's enough of a path towards that and enough freedom towards that, you know, there may, may be some obstacles and maybe some, you know, oppression. Like they'll always end up there, which I think is part of what the resilience is, is right. It's like, I can't be anything other than what I am. And I know this. And so I just have to try to figure out how to make that work. I don't think there are many people who could say that when, especially when they were a teenager, that they had a sense of 
what they wanted, a clear sense of what they wanted. And even when there was pressure externally, particularly from other kids to want something different or behave in a different way, that they were able to withstand that and go, no, 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 I know, I know who I am and I know what I want. I actually think that's that's quite unusual. But as you say, it's the thing that makes people interesting and attractive. Yeah, 100%. You had success, as you mentioned earlier, with the Triple J Unearthed High School competition. You were a finalist back in 2012. Mm. Was there any part of you at that point that was like, I just want to do this now? Like, were you able to stay focused on 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 school and sport and other things or was there part of you that was like, no, I found what I want to do? I actually don't remember very well what I thought exactly at the time. I know I, I did stay in school and I think I, like, was into that. Yeah. Like, I, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed being there. I liked my teachers. I liked learning. I liked my subjects. I was good at it. So I think I was happy to finish year 12. I think I was also scared of the world and I knew that if I had left school by that point, I mean, my mom also never would have left me, (laughs) let, let me. She would have she would have said, you know, no, you have to finish year 12. But I was for a good year after I left high school still pretty afraid of of trying to have a music career, yeah. I think. Like, it felt very scary. I was pretty resistant to it for a bit, but then I think the thing that ticked me over was when I got booked for my first support tour with San Cisco and, and then, you know, I performed on stage. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, I really enjoyed that and I really enjoyed that it felt like a sense of progress and momentum and that I could play my music in front of people and watch it start to click for them, like, in the room. That was really cool. But it did take me a minute, like, to psychologically, mentally adjust to striving for a music career, I think. Yeah, I think, and I'm projecting here as child of um, immigrants as well, um, mm. but I do think there's a pressure on kids of migrants, right, to make good, safe choices. Yeah. And music's not seen as as safe, and I'm using inverted commas here, everyone yeah. listening. <laughs> yeah, well, my mum wanted me to be successful in music. Mm. It worked pretty hard to make the starting point Ha- you know, work and happen and, mm. and and be a good groundwork for the future. At the same time, she was like, no, you have to go to university <laughs> though. Like you have to go to university and get a degree. And I was like, look, I can't do both. Like yeah. I can barely focus on university as it is because I'm like learning that I now have a social life I enjoy. <laughs> and also I'm working, you know, I was working at a news agency like, for a while and like you know I was working I was studying I was trying to be Montaigne I was doing the whole thing I was still living in Kellyville at the time with my family which was like an hour and a half bus ride from the city um and I was having to do that there and back every day and yeah when I dropped out or when I deferred my uni degree and eventually dropped out my mom just absolutely lost it and she was just yeah absolutely dismayed but I knew that was right for me, though, because I was like, I know what I can manage right now. And it's not both of these things. And honestly, I don't really want to give up the Montaigne stuff for university, which I can always come back to later in life. So and, you know, it worked out. But 
Yeah, no, it definitely that thing of like my mum both wanted, she knew she could see the path to success with music for me yeah. now that there'd already been all these opportunities given to me. But at the same time, it's like, oh, you still have to have a safety net though. Yeah, yeah. And like, which I, yeah, I totally understand. But then when it does come to very practical decisions of like you can only do one or the other without completely burning out, like you, ha- you just have to make a choice. Yeah. You know, like, and I, yeah, that's the choice I made. So, yeah. Uh, well, it feels like it's paid off, mate. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I feel yeah, like it was a good choice. It's um, worked out pretty well. I want to ask about uh, around around that time was when you when you adopted the Monica Montaigne. You, you mentioned um, uh, touring with San Cisco, and I think that was sort of the year after you started using Montaigne as as a Monica. I want to ask about making a choice about what to call yourself as an artist, really mm. young, knowing that you know, you were, you were going to keep doing this and you were going to change and evolve. And at the same time, I wanted to ask, has the way that you have perhaps evolved your relationship with, with the name, how has your sound evolved at the same time? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, Yeah. When I was 18, I was really into philosophy, Um, you know, on a very surface level, of course, because I was 18 and, you know, 18-year-olds always think they know everything. But I was reading a lot of, like, I guess pop philosophy books in, like, yeah. the school library, and the one of the ones I picked up was The Constellations of Philosophy by Alain de Botton. And I wanted my artist name to be one of a philosopher because I wanted people to think I thought deeply and critically. <laughs> and, um, you know, when they heard my name yeah. in the project. And, and I wanted, you know, I wanted the name to be, yeah, well-considered, yeah. right? Like, I wanted to put a lot of thought and effort and make sure it reflected the things I valued and and cared about, I suppose. So I was reading that book and there was a chapter on death, like constellations on death, and um, Michel de Montaigne was the, the key philosopher he explores in that chapter. And I really liked what I read because it opens, like the first two pages are partly about like how Montaigne claimed he knew a guy who could like fart attitude like that kind of thing and I was just like that's funny like you always every time you you know when people talk about philosophers it's with great seriousness and this is the pivotal work that they brought to the world and and the deep thoughts and debates and discussions that you know we still talk about today and um I just like that this guy was kind of silly and goofy and and you know he obviously did serious work that impacted the world greatly but like he was also he wasn't interested in just being a serious figure like he he wanted people to think he had a good sense of humor and that he was a great he was great at chatting and you know all that stuff which I wouldn't necessarily say I'm great at chatting and I feel like I have a pretty good sense of humor but like the rest of what I read I enjoyed which is that you know, he for a long time thought a lot about death and sort of came to terms with it when he had a near-death experience mm. and he is a skeptic. So his whole thing is like, what do I know? Like, I don't, I'm just some guy. I don't mm. have the authority on every single thing in the world. You know, I'm just having my cute little thoughts and hoping that someone gets something out of them and was very stream of consciousness writery kind of way of doing things. So I just resonated with that. And I was like, you know, and I also speak French. So 
it worked for me in my mind. And Ten years later, does it still work? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's good choices. Yeah, that's the thing is like I don't think my vibes changed that much, at least in that, you know, in regards to everything I just said about Montaigne. Like I think I still agree with all those things and – I think when I was 18, I didn't think I'd that necessarily change either, you know. Yeah. And I think that's what you get from philosophers is like a philosophy is a, yeah, it's a way of viewing the world and it includes principles and, and values and a sort of st- structure about it that ideally, you know, it doesn't have to stay the same forever, but, you know, often it does stay consistent because it is is something fundamental about the way each individual sees the world. And I... I've stayed like a skeptic and I've stayed in that sort of what do I know, like space, you know, and I didn't think that would change. So so if you're a skeptic, what's your philosophy on success? Because you've had, I mean, you've had a lot of it, right? Like there, yeah. there are arias in that bio. There is a Eurovision song contest. There's some albums to be very, very proud of. How does, mm. how does the skepticism sit with the fame and the success? Yeah, I'm very skeptical of fame, you know, double-edged yeah. for everyone and in in every way. I think it's interesting. It's a great way to live if you have it in a certain amount. I mm. think if I had any more of it that I currently do, I'd probably hate it. Mm. Um, I think if I had any less of it than I currently do, I'd be like, what the hell, man? <laughs> Like, I think it's just, this is the thing is like fame is the metric for how well your artist project is doing. (laughs) And like, I don't want that to be true, but it is. And I have no real interest in the trappings of fame. Of course, I take advantage of the trappings that are available to me. Like I get invited to cool events. I get offered free stuff sometimes. Like that's really cool. But also like if I didn't have that stuff as well, and I could just be an artist forever, I'd be happy with that, right? Yeah. And I think this also all boils down to my essential left-wingedness and socialism is that I just think everyone should get what I get, you know? Or, like, everyone should just have... Not get what I get. I don't think necessarily everyone should, like, be at a cool party every single night or, like, (laughs) have a nice car. I don't know why I say that because I don't even have a car. But, like, you know, the the fame stuff, right? Like... I don't think necessarily everyone needs to have that stuff, but I do think everyone needs to feel comfortable and safe and secure every day of their lives, you know, like and feel supported and like they have enough money to eat and like have do a nice activity and buy a nice thing for themselves, you know, like. And then the other thing as well is just like, yeah, some people in my life really wanted me to be famous, like, you know, growing up and stuff. And I kind of resent that I fulfilled that for them, you know, like. I don't know. It's very complex for me in my mind because part of it is very much like a, yeah, a philosophical structural thing. Mm. I have a critique of fame on that basis. But then also there's the very personal thing of, yeah, it's like before I was famous, what was my relationship to fame as well? Now that I am, it's like it's completely changed as well because it's like now an ineluctable state of being that I can never you know, reverse and I'll probably only get more famous as time goes on as well, you know. And I think the key thing for me being in this position is like making sure that I don't get carried away with it and I keep being a normal guy and I treat people normally and I don't in social situations take advantage of my immediate 
power favor because I think so many people do, right? Is like, I'm famous, so I know everyone around me will probably do what I want. Where for me, I don't really want to act on that, you know? And I don't have the instinct to either, I don't think, like, which is good. I think that's the key thing is like, some people do just have the instinct to act on it and I don't. So that's cool. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Montaigne, I was a fan before. I'm an even bigger fan after this conversation. Thank you so much <laughs> for chatting and being so honest and reflective. That was a whole lot of fun. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Montaigne. But don't go away. The weekend list is coming up next. It is weekend list time. Helen Smith is here. And folks, she's been working hard. She's been working hard, coming up with recommendations for you, coming up with a way to live your best life, even if that best life is sitting on the couch watching more television. What are you going to kick us off with? So my first recommendation, yes, is watching more television. I yes. <laughs> I am going to recommend the Ed Sheeran doco on Disney. Uh, it's called The Sum of It All. And it has made me obsessed with Ed and his wife, Cherry. <laughs> like, oh my God, couple goals. They are such a beautiful love story. And they are, they are just what, like, they just give me hope for love. I'm just like, wow, they are beautiful. And it's a really raw view of Cherry because usually she stays out of the media. She's not really in anything to do with the media or Ed's like famous, you know, pop star life. But you find out in the second episode why she's kind of agreed to do this and it's it's quite heartbreaking but it's really powerful and throughout it as well, Ed's also, he's so vulnerable about his mental health, his struggles, his loss, his hard working as well and how hard he, you know, these pop stars, we see all the surface pretty stuff but, you know, he kind of takes us back to he works these insane hours and he's touring around the world and also trying to just appreciate everyone in his life. And it also touches on the two copyright law cases that he was yeah, just yeah. involved in as well. So yeah, it's got a bit of everything. I absolutely love it. And yeah, that that's my first one. Awesome. Folks, I have a bit of an odd one. So you're going to have to bear with me and you're going to have to take my word for it that this is truly excellent content. I would not bring it to you if it was not. So I follow a woman on social media on Instagram called Lies Carlaw. Mm -hmm. She is one half of those two girls who uh, have a radio show and a, a podcast of their own. Lies is a mum of two and her family are travelling to Europe over winter for six weeks. And Lies has decided that because of all the cobblestones and the fact that when you have to, and you don't want to have to pull your wheelie suitcase over them and the fact that she's got young kids and those kids are definitely going to be like, mom, can you carry my bag? And it's going to be really annoying. And they're doing so much movement around Europe, lots of trains, lots of buses, lots of ferries, lots of everything. She decided that she was going to do the entire trip, the entire family, only with carry-on. Six weeks in Europe, only with carry-on, with children. It's mad, everybody. It's mad. Anyway, she is a very funny lady, and she ended up spending weeks ahead of their departure creating content on Instagram. It's all saved in her stories of how she went about it and all the tricks she did and all of her, like, existential angst about whether or not she really can do the whole trip with two pairs of shoes and, like, literally trying to figure out how much an earring weighs because she's got to get under the 7.2 kilos that her carry-on has to be. It is the most 
bonkers, hysterical thing I've seen in a long time. It's a lot, everyone. Like don't invest your time unless you're really willing to invest your time because it goes for quite a while. But the tension that I felt by the time that family got to the airport and were getting their bags checked and weighed was so extreme. Anyway, she has documented it all. I really, really recommend you go and check it out. It's very, very funny. It's Lies, L-I-S-E, Carlo, C-A-R-L-O-W, and you can find her on Instagram. The whole thing is in her stories. You must start from the beginning, everyone. You can't fast forward to the end to see if she did it. You've got to invest from the start. Back to you, Helen. That sounds insane. I I know. I can't believe that. I struggle to go a weekend away with Carry On. Same. Wow. I need to see that. Um so my second recommendation is a movie which is also I know you said this last week, it's also quite rare for me to watch a movie. I don't know why, but it is called White Men Can't Jump and it's a remake of the 1992 film about um, these two basketballers, they become like best friends and they're both hustlers. They're like entering these tournaments to make cash and support their family, support themselves and their partners. And it's just a, it's a feel good film. It's a really good feel good film. And it's, co-stars Jack Harlow, who I did not know could act. He's, you know, he's a singer. He's like the rapper. And I was, I was shook. I was kind of like, oh my God, Jack Harlow is really good at acting. Why did I not know this? Yeah. I'm still kind of like, wow, I might go back and watch it again. But yeah, that's my rec. It's really good movie. I also want to watch the original because I want to compare. So that's, yeah, that's my rec. Look at us bringing you movie recommendations two weeks in a row, everyone. It's all right. I'm going back to normal programming. I am recommending television. Quick one, guys. This is one you have to watch. It is uh, new on Amazon Prime. It's called Deadlock. It's created by Australian comedy superstars, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney, who known as the Kates in the industry. They were behind the short form series, The Catering Show, and also Get Kraken on the ABC. Mm. This is sort of the next step in their careers. Uh, Deadlock is a, it's a, it's a drama series. It's also very very, very funny. I'm not giving anything away. It begins on a Tasmanian beach and there is a dead body lying on the beach. There is a penis joke in the first couple of minutes, folks. And then this little Tasmanian town uh, basically dialing up all of the antics around the solving of this murder. The lead is Kate Box, who plays the senior sergeant, whose name is Dulcie Collins. And It's so Australian. It's so delightful. There is so much about this that just makes you giggle and think about things that are really unique to uh, small towns in Australia, things that remind you of different um, stereotypes and subgroups of people that exist in our fine country. Honestly, it is like comedy and humour that is satirical, but it is also done with enormous kindness. And it also manages to be like a genuinely great detective show as well. Like you are sort of sucked into the drama of the detective show. 10 out of 10 recommend everyone. It is so good. That's it for the weekend briefing for another week. Thank you so much for being with us, folks. If you want more, you know where to find us. We're in the listener app. We're on all the podcast apps. If you follow or subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.